Ladies and gentlemen, it is your boy, Sam Gilstrap. We are back. Episode 44. It's an exciting time. We're sitting down with the multi-talented renaissance woman that is Betty Hart. Betty, how the heck are you? <laughs> Hi, Sam. Glad to be here. Thank you. I'm so glad that you were, were able to like sit down and, and talk. We had a lot of things in the fire before we were like told to stay in our homes. But yeah. um, it's, you know, busy people, talented people. Those are good things. And we'll get back on that track. Yeah. Hope so. Right. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, just just to check in on a personal level. You're feeling good. Yeah. Yeah. Health wise, I'm good. Um, I think uh, this has been the third week. Uh, you know, in quarantine for me, mm. so three weeks in captivity, and uh, it's not easy, but, um, you know, doing what I can, yeah. and uh, really just trying to to be authentic about where I am. I think as a, as a naturally positive person, um, the myth can be that we're always good, and I think it's important for people to know that during this time, I can't imagine anyone has been always good, it's mm-hmm. a mix, you know, and like I woke up today and I was like in a great place and I was so excited. And then I got the email that Colorado Shakespeare is closed for the summer. So, uh, so it's kind of like that, like you'll be good. And then another hit happens and, you know, John Moore yesterday. And so it's just like, whew. so I'm good under the circumstances while trying to weather these hits that keep on coming. Definitely. Uh, if you don't mind me asking, um, this could be a Rubik's Cube thing, but uh, what's up with John Moore? Oh, you haven't heard. No. Oh, honey. DCPA cut 55% of their staff yesterday, and John Moore was one of the people who no longer is employed. Oh, God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So you understand why it's it's a tough, tough, it's another tough week. Yeah. 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 It's... Every, I think that's one of the things that's really scary about this is like, it seems to be changing so fast while our days seem interminably slow. <laughs> well, that's why people are saying now a week is like a year yeah. because it feels like that. I mean, it's hard to believe that March 1st, we were living a normal life. Mm-hmm. That wasn't a long time ago, but it feels like a millennia. Mm-hmm. No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, it was, it was so funny, like two days ago, um, which... I don't know what the hell happened two days ago. Um, I think we did something. I think I reported a podcast. And I don't even... You like, did. Yeah. yeah. But outside of that, I got notification that, okay, we're not going to start schools back up until May 1st. Oof. And then last night, they said they're going to keep them closed for the rest of the school year. And then we'll try again in August, which based off the, the research and the science that I'm reading, that's, 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 a, that's a high hope right now and uh, thankful for that potential i'm still getting paid luckily i'm very lucky in this time but it's you know it's scary it's really scary and uh i'm i'm trying to make the most of it and i and i think i think we all are yeah um even if even if my little podcast and my my unofficial sponsor today cookies with uh coconut and dark chocolate they're very tasty they're called Cookie Thins, the Thinsters. So go out and buy those when you're allowed to go out to the store that one time a week, okay? <laughs> Save some toilet paper, get some cookies. 
Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, try to, to try to try to try to put a positive spin on everything. Um, sure. Let's uh, dive in, shall we? Absolutely. Theater. How did it happen? Um, according to my mother, when I was three years old, I, um, this is in a time period when kids went to bed on time because you were supposed to, um, and my parents, I know there was, there were times in this country when that happens. Apparently it still does occasionally. Anyway, um, I went to sleep like I was supposed to, and my parents were having a card party because I come from a family of card sharks. And according to my mom, around midnight, I got up out of bed, came into the room, sang, took a bow and went back to bed. So she said that she was pretty convinced at that age that I was gonna be an actor. And one of the cool things that she did was she really fostered it and encouraged it and helped me. So a lot of people talk about not having the support in terms of family. I, I had all the support in the world. I got to take classes at Coconut Grove Children's Theater in Florida. and. You know, I just, I got to do stuff the whole time. So I never had, on my mom's side, I didn't have anyone telling me I couldn't. My mm -hmm. dad, on the other hand, was like, you're too smart for that. Why don't you use your brain more? And I was like, dad, that's the key thing. As an actor and a director, we have to be the smartest people in the room. And he was yeah. like. <laughs> does he, does, has he so, softened yeah, so, on that? Yeah. No, he never softened on that. No, oh. he's since gone. Oh. He, um, but no. I always thought that I should be a lawyer because that's the kind of intelligence that I have. And he was always excited that I took to. Well, you're definitely, you're definitely smart. That's, that's been one of the things that's been clear to me from day one is this, there's a, there's a poise and articulation just as you being Betty. That's really, really interesting to see. And I, I agree with your dad. You should have been a lawyer, but you're <laughs> really good at the arts too. Someday I will play a lawyer and I will be so amazing and you will change your mind. And you haven't, you haven't played wrong. a lawyer yet? I haven't. No, it's oh. sad, but not yet. Man, just add that to the backstory of one of your characters that you know doesn't come up in the script. <laughs> you know, I I mean, you could say that Queen Elizabeth had a whole legal argument against Richard, so you could say that she's already made an appearance but not in a formal capacity no yeah true very true very true so you you're born in florida yes yes awesome yeah, born so in miami in miami yeah i was born in miami was there for through middle school then mom moved to atlanta and uh, moved to a, a suburb of atlanta called stone mountain and so i was there for 10th through 12th high school then went to whittier college in whittier california and then returned to georgia then went to RADA, then returned to Georgia, and now I'm here. Wow. What, was, what were the experiences like in Georgia doing theater? Uh, tremendous. Uh, I mean, Atlanta, of course, now everybody knows it as, you know, another movie capital. But before we were the movie capital, there were just lots of really great theaters doing some really great work. Um, that's how I met Chris Coleman. He uh, founded... Uh, Actors Express there, and I met him taking an acting class with him. So um, deep roots going back that way. But yeah, Atlanta was an amazing uh, playground. And I think what I'm most grateful for is that it gave me the opportunity to um, stretch my wings as a director 
and to discover that other side of my my act because I'm both an actor and a director and Atlanta gave me tremendous opportunities to direct which I'm really grateful for and are certainly serving me to this day definitely what 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 inspired you to focus well I mean you do it all but I it sounds like you you love directing on a different level what pushed you in that direction <laughs> well um it's kind of a horrible story, but it's true. So um, I was working for Kaiser Permanente's educational theater programs and a dear friend of mine, David Craven, was one of the directors with them. And he said, hey, have you ever considered directing? And I said, no. Mm. And he said, well, did you take a directing class in college? And I said, yeah, because they made me. And he said, well, I want you to consider directing. And I was like, I'm not interested. And he goes, there's more money. And I was like, let's talk about directing. So um, it's sad, but it's true. It was all about the money. So um, I got to direct uh, a two-hander and discovered that I, I actually really enjoyed it, that there was something really wonderful about helping other people succeed, about helping other people find what they needed. It's a very interesting thing being both an actor and a director because you can see both sides. And so telling the story and helping the actors to kind of surpass where you are in telling the story is a pretty exciting dance. And so that's how I started. And then the artistic director of the theater saw my interest and she was like, okay, I'm gonna give you some crash courses in directing because you've got the gift. And I was like, what? And so we literally spent time on a checkerboard with salt and pepper shakers. And, um, and we did all of this really cool work talking about space and pictures and light and dark. And um, so a really unconventional way mm -hmm. to get into directing. And for years, I would always say, well, I'm not a director. I'm just a person who directs. And it took one of my casts to say, uh, you need to stop saying that because yeah. you legitimately are a director. And, mm -hmm. um, and I put that to heart. And then I started getting gigs way outside of KP. And, you know, it's kind of like every actor kind of secretly thinks that at some point in time, you're going to be found out as a fraud. I kind of yeah. kept thinking that as a director, I was like, at some point in time, they're going to go, she's not legit, but it didn't happen. And I kept getting gigs and I kept doing work. So um, I think I like both aspects. I couldn't give up one. And mm -hmm. um, when I came to Colorado, one of the things you always figure out in every market is that people will only let you be super versatile after you've proven yourself in one area. You just mm -hmm. kind of can't come on the scene and go, I do seven things. It just doesn't work. So um, I know that uh, people didn't know me here. There was no chance they were going to just open their doors and let me direct. That's just not the way it works. So I'm an equity actress. I was like, I will just focus on acting. And when the opportunity comes, the door will open. Mm. And that's exactly what happened with Vintage and Bernie Cardell. Nice. What, why do you think uh, people won't let you shine in those, those multi areas that you do shine in? Um, like, you know, in your opinion, maybe not I your experiences, but. Yeah, I would say that um, our industry likes to pigeonhole people. So that's why if you're a musical theater person, people don't expect to see you on the Colorado Shakespeare Festival stage. You know what I mean? There's just this thing in our industry of you do this. And it's kind of odd because if you think about vaudeville and you think about our beginnings, people had to do so many different things and that was the norm but somehow we've moved to a place where it feels as though people expect you to do one thing and one thing only, instead of having a variety of talents. 
I, I don't know why we do it to people, but it seems to be pretty common and it seems to be common, not just in Colorado, it was true in Georgia. I've seen it to be true all over the country. It's just kind of a thing that we do as people. Yeah, it, it seems like um, people are easier to understand if we see them as A, you know, and then learn about B and so on. Yeah. And I, and I, and I, don't, I don't know if that's necessarily the right thing to do, but it's certainly, certainly a practice even if we're not intending it in some cases? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes to the brain, right? The brain is trying to make sense of things mm -hmm. and we can make sense of something and go one thing, I got it, you know? Like, oh, you're Sam, right, Sam does the podcast, right? We put you yeah. in that, the podcast guy. And, yeah. and that's easier to do and kind of like type you and like not have to think about it than, mm -hmm. oh, Sam is this and this and this and this. Well, now my brain has to constantly wonder and yeah. my brain doesn't want to wonder. My brain wants to be able to know and move on. And so yeah. I think that's kind of what we do. Absolutely. Yeah. You're, that's a great point. I'm glad that you put it in those words. So you're here in Colorado. You, you talked about this relationship with Bernie. Um, without going into like details about like conversations and stuff, talk about like you, that's where you started directing was that vintage? Uh, well, Colorado. yes, so um, here in Colorado, I actually started directing for Kaiser Permanente's Arts Integrated Resources, but unless you happen to attend one of those workshops and see the shows, you wouldn't have seen it. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of main stage, yeah, uh, Bernie Cardell absolutely opened the door for me to direct here and gave me um, a shot directing uh, Mary Louise Lee in uh, Lady Day at Emerson's Bar and Grill. And it just so happened that um, a beautiful thing happened. He hired me to do that. and. Mary Louise had done the workshop of that at the Denver Center, and they were getting ready to do a production of it at the Garner Galleria. And so she saw our audition notice, and she contacted Nataki and said, hey, is it okay if I audition? And Nataki said, hold on, let me just kind of intervene. And Nataki took Bernie to lunch and said, hey, we'd like to do a collaboration as opposed to a co-production so that both theaters have autonomy. But mm -hmm. she said, I'd like to take your director and have you take my talent and we'll share artwork. So my first gig was actually at Vintage and the Denver Center at uh, the Garner Galleria. Wow. That's, that's crazy how they like right? linked up like that. I, I don't yeah. hear about that happening all the time. That's really cool. No, no. I had never heard of it happening. And when I tell you, I, I was waiting for the door to open, like the door opened. And yeah. Uh, and yeah, and ever since then, I've had an opportunity to direct, which has been great. Nice. Very cool. As you've grown here and just in general with your accoutrement, your talents, what are some of the things that you see um, are changing in, in the arts, theater specifically? Hmm. Uh, in theater or theater in Colorado? Let's, let's start with theater in Colorado. What's some of the things you notice here? Okay. I think uh, a big change is there's a greater interest in um, exploring the possibility of uh, cross-racial casting, non-binary, um, different abilities, uh, crossing gender. There's just a an excitement now about doing things that are not necessarily the way we've always done it that I find to be a, a large part of what's happening in Colorado theater now that's exciting. Um, 
it's really exciting for me personally because in Atlanta I was able to play any role and then I came to Colorado and I was suddenly auditioning for black roles and mm -hmm. that that was problematic for me as an artist because I'm I am black but that's not um, the only story that I'm interested in telling so it's nice to be able to get called in now for shows period and not only for shows where I'm a particular type of performer. What I mean, I would assume before our paths crossed, you've been on, you've played roles that some people might deem traditionally a, you know, we'll, I'll say it, traditionally white. What was that like for you when you first started playing those roles that maybe other people would go, what's that about? She's not that person. You know, I can't answer that because it made sense to me. So I was just doing what my job was and fulfilling what I believe I'm supposed to do as an artist. I was telling a story and inhabiting a role and being my part of, you know, a bigger picture. So mm -hmm. that's always been normal to me. It's mm -hmm. kind of uh, odd to me when people think I can't, when yeah. people are surprised that I've played Shakespearean roles, that's odd. I don't know what it like in terms of the framework of your question. Yeah. No, no, that, that makes that makes sense. Yeah. I, I mean, when me and you were working on the read for Local Lab, I mean, just the conversations we had after we read, that was was really great. And I had mentioned to you how I was a little raw, but I wanted to keep going forward. Uh, the it seemed like that was how you would have handled that situation regardless like it didn't feel like it was incumbent upon you you felt like you needed to hold that yeah. specific type of space which is you know i don't know in and of itself is refreshing it just if it feels natural that's where we were trying to get i think in terms of specific relationships um so um, i'm glad to hear your your side on that it, it, it's a it's a weird question for me to ask is it me and you've talked you know i've i've played parts that I probably shouldn't have said yes to. Um, but, uh, you know, Othello jumps to mind. <laughs> yeah, when you told me that, I still like, oh. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. It was, you know, it was a, there, there, that's a story, that's a, that's a Rubik's Cube tale. I'll go, I'll, I'll talk about that later. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, when, when it, it took, I think it took me like a long time to go like, no, I'm Native American. So that's, those are the minority rules I should seek out. Like if it's specifically asking for something, then those are the ones I specifically, have. but it took me forever to get to that place. And, and I, I, there was that transition period where I was like, well, that's the right thing to do as opposed to it just being what existed within me, which is, I don't know. I still think that's such a, I think it's a challenge because as an artist, your first, desire is to create right that's all you want to do and we all know that the more you do it the better you become and so taking yourself out of consideration and lessening your opportunities to perform is a really hard thing to ask someone to do and so it's it's tricky and there are, there are places that i'm like really clear cut about it Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of gray area where I'm like, uh, well, it depends. I don't know. Mm -hmm. It's hard. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think at the end of the day, too, is like 
we're, as artists, you had said it earlier in the podcast, I was a person who directed. We're people. We're, that's all we are. And people in and of themselves are learning every day if, in my opinion, you're doing it right. Right. It, I'm learning every day how to best occupy my time. I'm trying to make decisions before I get bored of something. Like, well, I've been playing video games every day, which is true, you know. <laughs> and then they, do I get tired of that and then start reading? Do I start writing my own stuff? Do I at the very least journal? You know, how do I, how do I make sense of that? But then in terms of just if things were status quo, you know, how do I proceed? What is the right pronoun? The, being present, being aware is a moment to moment thing when you're thinking in terms of how to relate to people that you don't know. And when you're trying to create art, it's the same thing. Like your, your people's trying to sort it out yourselves on the Absolutely. fly in some cases. Yeah. yeah. When, would you talk about, I don't know, when you, when you were directing, how much is that infused by your own process as an actor? Do you, or do you just assume that everyone's got their own thing and then you read and adjust on the fly in terms of giving notes and like just holding space for people? Or is that something that you have your own process that dictates how you do it? Uh, it's a great question, Sam. I would say that my process is really trying to be all things to the different people that I'm working with. Mm -hmm. So that if I have a person in the cast who's like me, who's like, let me know if I'm going astray, I wanna know now, don't tell me two weeks from now, if you knew now, then that person will get notes immediately. But there could be another person alongside them who is very much like, you know, I'm still finding my path. And if you say anything to me, you're gonna crush my soul. So they might not get anything for a while. And I literally try to shift from person to person. Um, I think overall, I try to come from a positive space of affirming what people are doing well. I'm also a straight shooter. I do try to just kind of give feedback and say, I'd like you to go in a different direction or ask questions to see why you're going in that direction. Mm -hmm. But I kind of shift from person to person, which is uh, not easy and not as much fun. I would love it if every single actor and I had that kind of trust where I could just do my process, which is like, don't ever do that again. Let's move on. I would love that world, but I don't live in that world. So I instead, I really stretch myself to try and foster an atmosphere where, where actors can feel free to create. And I think the flip side of that is that you can't create if you can't fail. And so the director's task is to know when to comment on the failure and when to let it ride. And I think in the same way that you talked about that it's a moment to moment journey, that's how it is. And I think that's why directors have a, a genuine love of working with people that you know and that you've worked with before because then it's easier to figure out when to make those comments when you're first starting the relationship, you're constantly learning like, is it now? Nope. And so it's kind of a hard thing to do, um, but it's worth it. And what's great is if you establish in the, in the first week, really, that someone who is genuinely interested in the actor knowing more about the character than me, because that's the goal, that like the first week, sure, I may know more than anybody else, but 
in the middle of the second week, that should change. And the dynamic flips to me going from being the expert to needing to consult the expert, the actors, to find out how do we best tell that story because they've shifted. The power dynamics have shifted because they now know more than I can because they're inhabiting the, the role in a way that I can't because I'm outside as the director. Uh, nice. That's, that's, that's a great point. Um, I want to backtrack based off something that you'd said talking about processes as a director. What do you think are some of the, the, the biggest things a director should look for in terms of putting on, like as part of their vision of the piece? Like you had talked about as you were studying and you, you'd met with that, what the one director, I can't remember her name. I yeah, and you did the salt and pepper shakers on the chessboard things. You're talking about scene pictures. Like I, I've heard varying thoughts on what is to be the focus and I would just interested to get what your perspective would be on that. Yeah, well, the number one thing is to tell the story that the playwright wrote. That's mm -hmm. our number one job. And so um, because there's a lot of different ways to tell the story, the, I think the, the task of the director is to articulate vision clearly to every actor and every designer so that we can all get on the same page. I yeah. think first rehearsal, say you have a seven-person cast, you've got nine people in the room. You've got your seven cast, you've got your stage manager, you've got your director. You've got nine people with nine different ideas of how this can be done. And technically, they could all be right, but we can't move forward that way. So the director's job is to give a vision that everyone else can latch onto because then everything that they do feeds to serve that greater vision. We're telling one story, not nine different versions of the story. And so that's the, the number one task. And I feel like if I can do that, the first week of rehearsals is a beautiful thing because you literally see everything fall into place. Whether an actor has a moment of uncertainty about how to do something, that's fine, part of the process. But if they have a sense of where their role fits in the vision and they can start talking about the vision in a way that's been strong how you originally began, Mm -hmm. then I've, I've done my job and I can almost sit back because then they're going to take it and run with it. It doesn't mean I don't have a part to play, but the biggest part that I have to play is creating a picture considering I have no paints and no pencils and no tools. Can I create a picture with my words that everyone can see? And even though the picture they draw would look different, it somehow fits into that same picture that I created with words. Mm. What are some of your, what are you, some of your tactics in 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 in, just I'm trying to think of the right words here of dispensing of your vision. Like, what are some of the ways that you get to get everyone to buy in? Um, it's funny. I I don't have to do a lot to get people to buy in. I find that if you come in with genuine passion and zeal, mm -hmm. people kind of want to be a part of that. Yeah. So infectious without trying, at least that's what people have told me. I just come in with this excitement about the story and I come in with this excitement about the designers helping me tell this story. Mm -hmm. And I, I genuinely come in with a sense of, I can't do it without you. And I think all of those are things that people can lean into. So you're yeah. like, ooh, you're excited, I'm excited. You wanna tell a great story, I wanna tell a great story. You respect the text, I respect the text. You mm -hmm. value me, hey, I value me. I think all of those things together become 
um, a winning combination. And if I did my job well as a, as a casting director and mm-hmm. I put the right people in the right places, then it all works out. And I think that um, that passion and desire to tell the story can supersede ego and supersede dr- drama that's unnecessary because if we're all on the same accord, if we're all on the same page, all of that stuff gets mitigated. But yeah. if it isn't clear, then suddenly all of those other things rise to the fore and then you're putting out fires every day instead of actually creating art. Mm. Yeah. How frustrating is that when you're putting out fires every day? <sighs> Sam. <laughs> There's kind of almost nothing worse than being in a room charged to create, having the people there who can create, mm-hmm. and losing time because we're wasting time putting out fires rather than creating. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely one of the most frustrating things in the world. Mm. That, is, uh, that is a pain I know all too well, just even just being a, a guy at a school. And there's always so many cooks in the kitchen in those situations. And that's what gets me the most frustrated. Like all these people that think they know they have the best water to put out this fire. Like, uh, <laughs> stop. There's, there's somebody, there's somebody who can make that decision who's paid to make that decision and let's move on. You know, sure. I mean, there could be actors in the room who are also actor directors. And again, everybody can have a plan and their plan could be a great plan. Mm-hmm. It's just that we can't have nine plans and accomplish something. And so my hope is that if they genuinely love the story, and I think that's part of my job as a director in casting to see, do you have interest in this or is this just a gig? And I try not to hire the actors where it's just a gig. Because for me, there's almost always going to be more than one person for a role. So talent is part of the equation, but how you care about the story is a part of the equation. Mm -hmm. And just how do we vibe? Like when I say, and I give you some direction, are you completely confused? Or are you willing to ask? Because maybe you're in your head and you didn't really listen to what I said, because that Mm -hmm. happens. I think if we can get those, you know, reduced in the audition process, and once we get in the room, it should work. The caveat to that is when you are doing um, charged work, whether it be racially charged, gender charged, whatever. If we're working with work that is inherently triggering, then that's all bets are off because you can have total buy-in, but people who are being triggered tend to start fires because they're triggered and they don't always have the presence of mind to say, hey, I'm triggered and I need to take a step back. That's not what most of us do. Most of us, when triggered, just kind of do stuff. And mm-hmm. so then you've got that whole fire mentality of us um, becoming firefighters rather than just artists. Definitely. Yeah. Have you shifted your, uh, your focuses as an actor when you're in the room as just an actor because of the work you've done as a director? Like, are you aware? Are you catching yourself? I'm like, nope. I know how that's going to be perceived or something like that. Yeah. I, I kind of have rules and my fellow actors try to make me break those rules mm-hmm. because um, my rule is that if I'm an actor, I am only there as an actor. If I see you struggling, I am not a part of fixing it. I am just an actor and will lend support. But actor friends who know I'm a director are like, Hey, give me a tip here. You know that that you saw that they're not helping me. You could. And truth be told, 
I have helped lots of actors when I'm not acting in their show, when they've come to me and brought to me a situation that they're having with their director. Maybe they feel the director doesn't like them. Maybe they're not getting direction that is uh, playable. And I have learned how to give direction that still fits within what that director's doing to help the actors succeed. I can do it. It is a fun thing to do for my friends when we are not in a show together. Mm-hmm. When we are in a show together, oh my God, it is the worst request ever to have somebody try and have you cross over and be both director and actor. Mm-hmm. And I've just, I, I have really clear boundaries. I won't do it. I respect mm-hmm. director enough to just let them do what they do. Um, that being said, I also make a point of trying to be what I call director proof. So that if the director is not giving me what I need, that I as an actor am able to so uh, inhabit the role while also thinking about the story that's being told because I can listen to their succeed. Mm-hmm. Every now you just get a director that doesn't give you what you need mm-hmm. and you have to make a choice. Yeah. Um, are you going to just just do what you need to do to, to make it work? And so I, I will do that. Good. Well, I mean, you have to be able to do that because... I mean, surviving those situations is key for us. I love that you said surviving. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, whew, yes. It's. I mean, I've been. I've been in the room with directors that I've, I've disagreed with. I've also been the prick sometimes. Um, it's. It, it. 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 It's happened. I'm trying really hard to avoid that guy. That guy is not the best actor. But anyway, <laughs> you've been stuck in those situations where it just feels like. We're not getting the point across. We're not communicating the right way. I don't know how to. I don't know how to ask you the question anymore. That's going to get me back on your track, and so then you just end up having to. You got to make a decision. What aren't they complaining about, or what you know, or what are the things that they keep giving you? And if I just buy into that for the duration of this process, I'll get through it, and then I can always say later, director's job. Just did what they told me. <laughs> I mean, it's it's there. Some might call that a cop out, Sam Gilstrap, but anyway. <laughs> I make a point of really trying. Like, but what I will do because I'm both actor and director, I have a real strong sense of when is the timing for that, and I know that the director's biggest obstacle is time. So I won't spend time in the rehearsal room if I feel like that's not the time but I will circle back afterward or like the next day when we're not both frustrated and articulate my ideas and my questions. I try to do things in writing first because it gives people, a lot of directors are processors. People don't really think about us that way, but we are. And so it gives a person time to think and process and then be able to come back in their window rather than my, I need it right now because I've got to get to the scene. And I find doing that helps because even if we don't completely agree, because that happens, sometimes you just see the character differently than they do, you can get enough to be able to go, ah, I can honor what you're saying and still be true to what the character is. So that's what I try to do. I I try to come at it from a standpoint of, um, well, one, I hope I trust the directors that I work with. I try to, and um, if I can't totally trust that director, then I want to be able to say, here's something we can agree on, and I'll kind of create a platform based on that. Nice. That's great. What do you mean, for those of us who don't quite understand, 
by processors? Like, how would you describe that person? Yeah, well, there are different types of um, learners, right? Mm -hmm. And so there are the people like me, the little Bettys, who when you ask a question, they have an answer immediately. That would be a fast processor. They're mm -hmm. able to take the information, synthesize it quickly, and give you what you need. Yeah. There are also people who you can ask that exact same question to, and their mind does not come to an immediate answer. There are people who need time. And if you give them that time, whether that be 30 minutes or a day, or at least in some of my personal friends, like a month, a month to talk, to think, what? Anyway, these people exist. <laughs> and so if someone requires that time and you need something from them now, they can't really give you the best of themselves in that moment. Mm -hmm. So I try to remember the fact that everybody is a little bit. Yeah. everybody doesn't have and also that even with the little buddies we may be able to give you an answer today but that answer may not be as strong as the answer that we give you hours from now when we've actually had more time to think and digest yeah. so i try especially because so much of theater is about philosophy mm -hmm. you know we're talking about how two different people would uh, would handle this particular conflict. Well, I'm from the East Coast, you're from the West Coast. I've lived in the South. I went to college in the West. I went to, you know, university in London. I'm gonna have a different framework of possibilities. It doesn't matter wrong. You may have only lived one place and everything you've seen in your life has taught you the same this one thing. So we're at odds, but we're both right. So do we just dig in and just decide the other person's wrong or stupid? Or do we take a step back and then say, okay, what if they're right? What if everything I thought was wrong, what would happen if I leaned into that? And I just find that that processing how you to really great places. Mm -hmm. um, I had one show in particular where the director definitely wanted me to go in a different direction than I wanted to go. And I just said, okay, just imagine, what if she were right? And I, and just allowing my brain to have 24 hours of taking on her view, kind of, you know, doing it exercise, you know, you, you present the opposite, the opposite mm -hmm. point of view. And so what ended up happening is when I came back asking for this, this, and this, she got excited. She was like, yes, that's exactly what I want. I went, got it. I understand now what you want. Here's also what I'd like to do. And so we could actually have a both and versus an either or. Nice. You're wearing pants. I love that you're wearing pants. Thanks, man. Of course, I'm always wearing pants. I mean, for these interviews, you I Well, in the pre-interview, you suggested that you might not be, so I'm I'm pretty impressed. Well, I mean, it's it's one of those things. It's, it's something that you say to draw in the audience. And <laughs> but there, there's listen here. I am I am if nothing but a gentleman. I might be a gentleman in sweatpants at the moment, but. This is not about <laughs> anything beyond that. Um, Betty, we are having some audio issues every once in a while when, you, when you're when you speaking, so I may stop and ask you to repeat yourself just to get it all out there. I'm picking up sure. most of what you're saying, so Makes hopefully, sense. I mean, I, at the very least, the audience can pick up like, oh, that question leads me to believe she said this. <laughs> so we're, but we're on the sure. right path, I think. Um, but if I do do that, um, my apologies in advance. It's Based not your fault, it's tech. Yeah, tech, tech, tech. Love it. 
how have you felt being an artist has shaped and shifted who Betty Hart is? Or did Betty Hart shift the artist? Oof. Mm. I don't know. I, I think the two affect the other. Mm -hmm. The artist in me causes me to show up in some particular particular ways. And I think because we've been one for so long, I, I think it's a symbiotic thing. Nice. Yeah, no, I think that's a, I think that's a great answer. It's a symbiosis. It it just it just seems like as I, as I'm talking to you and in the in the bits and pieces of conversation we've had before this moment online, like there's there's this um, extra bit of energy, and I in in hearing you talk about the way you you know reach out to specific people and how you do adjust your your presence in the moment, depending on who you're dealing with, it seems like there's this self-awareness. And I just wanted to see if that was something that you were aware of back in the day going like, Oh, that shifted because of, uh, and then vice versa. So. Uh, you know, that is interesting. I would say, yes, I, part of that is, uh, you know, person self-conscious as a kid and then I became completely not self-conscious as a teen. Very mm -hmm. odd. Um, and then a weird mix in college and beyond. And um, how do I fit in, in this place at this time? And which aspect of myself am I going to put on display? Um, like you talk about my energy. There's an entire group of people who experienced me as a child who didn't know that I was so loud and gregarious because mm -hmm. all they saw was uh, the, my forehead because my head was in a book. And that's all I did. I just read and just read and read and read. And so there are people who you, you would say, Betty, and they would go, oh, you mean the bookworm? And they'd be like, no, the really loud, obnoxious person, they'd go, Betty? And so that sense of having these different personalities has mm -hmm. definitely been a part of me. And um, I think the beauty of just as you, you know, discover more of who you are and decide who you want to be is that I can be any of those things, so I can be quiet and I can be crazy loud. And I recognize that other people perceive me as having lots of energy, which to be very honest, I've never understood. But teachers in school used to say to my mom, why don't you run them around the block and let them, before they go to sleep? And my mom was like, we, so <laughs> um, when you have this energy, you don't perceive it as energy, but everybody else does. So I've learned that people see me as having energy. And so I even make a point of going, okay, can you modify how you come across so that it's not too much energy? Because some people can be overwhelmed, which doesn't make any sense to me, but you know, there it is. Well, yeah, um, two things. First, what was it your mother said to you? People telling you to run around the block? Yeah, my teachers would tell my mom, you know, they have so much energy. Why don't you run them around the block at night? And she'd be like, I did. And this is how they are. Like, we would wake up with this kind of energy. Um, and my nephews are like this. And so it's kind of fun because I think it is genetic. Like, mm -hmm. my nephews wake up and they are instantly awake. Two of the three. One, not so much. But wow. the oldest and the youngest wake up and they're really alert. Let go arm. And then the middle child, not so much. But, yeah, two of us, two of the three. Let's go. And that's kind of how I am. Nice. My next question, or my next thing is not even a question. It was just like, when I talk about energy, it's just like, 
your your vibe, your presence. There is a there is a um there's a a, a buoyant light to you. That's like that was that was the infectious part about our opportunities working with you. I just always like, yes, that positivity is there. Never once did I was like, I've been intimidated by you for other things, not because of your positivity. You know what you want in the vast majority of the times me and you've had conversations. So I'm always like, that is something that I'm getting better at, maybe. But it's when I see it in other people, I'm immediately like, huh? <laughs> like, did I do that kind of thing? But yeah, that, that's what I see. <laughs> Um, Betty, I think it's time for the rapid fire. That has been part of Betty from the beginning. Okay, let's do it. Nice. All right, here we go. Where do you get your news from? Uh, NPR, BBC, The Guardian, CNN, Facebook. Nice. Um, what movie do you think deserves a sequel? Um... You know, nothing comes to mind. Um, <laughs> no movie deserves a sequel. That's your answer. Okay, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> what is the backdrop or wallpaper on your phone? Uh, my dog, Mocha. Oh, Mocha. Beautiful. You have to show us the dog before we go. Okay. Yeah. Um, which living musician would you pay the most money to see right now? Ooh. Money's no object, but you're like, I'm dropping whatever the number is. Uh, tie between Sting and Chanticleer. Sting and Chanticleer. Nice choices. Yes. Um, what stupid fact do you still have memorized from school? Oh my gosh. I, I have so many stupid facts. I don't know if I can give you one. Um, uh, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Nice. What, what law is that again? Physics. Physics. Bam. See? See, this is why I got into theater. All I got to learn is how to count money or and subtract money. <laughs> Um, who is your first celebrity crush, Betty? Was it Sting? Oh uh, no. <laughs> no. I mean, it should have been, but no. Oh, gosh, who's my first? Mm, I'm horrible at these things. I don't often have celebrity crushes. Um, I do now, but I can't think of who had. Um... <laughs> okay, um, maybe... Maybe Duran Duran. Duran. Ooh, ooh, nice, nice. What uh, conspiracy theory? Conspiracy theory? Do you kind of believe? Ooh. Okay. That maybe, maybe COVID nineteen is biological warfare just unleashed on a global level rather than the one I always thought it would happen like in a small city or town? Mm -hmm. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. Maybe. I All mean, right. I don't completely, but it's, it's possible. Absolutely. Anything's possible. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite word? Phenomenal. Phenomenal. 
Nice. Very good. Betty, as we get to this point in the podcast, I always close with uh, our title. What do you wish was that ghost light? What ghost light do you wish was left on for you when you started your career? Um, I wish I had known that in both directing and acting, Chance plays so much more of a role than talent. And I think if I had known that, I wouldn't have stressed so much thinking I could do or become something to get someone to like me rather than just focusing on being the best me and walking in the room. Now I know that when I walk in the room, I don't have the job. And when I walk out of the room, I don't have the job. And it's about what happens in that in-between time. I wish I had understood that and not spent so much time agonizing about every opportunity and not letting it go. Everybody tells you to let it go. I really wish that I had understood it would have been better for me to just do the thing, do the interview, do the audition and let it yeah. go. It's just a performance. Move on. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Well, thank you so much for being our guest today. I really appreciate you sitting down with me and giving me the opportunity to get to learn a little more about you and for the ghosties at home that uh, give us a listen um, I really appreciate it. It means a lot, especially during this time. Um, we want to be as tight a community as we possibly can be and uh, be stronger when we come out of this. Thank you, Sam. I'm really honored to be part of the amazing people who've been on the Ghost Light Podcast. Definitely. Dan, you know what to do. Thank you, Betty. Ghosties at home. I love you. Take care of each other and wash your hands. <laughs> Bye.